Before we get started, I want to let you know about one of our upcoming programs, the 2018 Founders Day Symposium, Chaos, Complexity, Creativity, with Sam Kimballs, Richard Tarnas, and Catherine Jones, on Saturday, March 24th, 2018. Three keynote speakers will present on topics that synthesize various possible responses to the challenging complexities of the cultural, political, and environmental chaos that currently both unites and divides humankind. For more information about that program, visit our website, youngchicago.org. Welcome to the Jungian Anthology Podcast, analytical psychology seminars from the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago. Mythology and Psychology with Robert Moore, Ph.D. This episode, Mythology and Psychology, is part one of the series Myth and Psyche, an introduction to Jungian perspectives on human mythology. It was recorded in 1992. According to Jung, myth-making is a natural and impersonal potential present in the collective unconscious of all peoples throughout all times. Drawing on the contributions of Jung, Campbell, and Iliadi, this course explores the role of myth in human life. Five of the major mythological themes prominent in world mythology are examined in terms of their contemporary psychological and cultural significance. The mythology of creation, mythology of the divine child, mythology of the hero, mythology of the shaman, mythology of the apocalypse. Robert Moore, PhD, was Distinguished Professor of Psychology, Psychoanalysis, and Spirituality in the Graduate Center of the Chicago Theological Seminary, where he was the founding director of the New Institute for Advanced Studies in Spirituality and Wellness. An internationally recognized psychoanalyst and consultant in private practice in Chicago, he served as a training analyst at the C.G. Jung Institute of Chicago and was director of research for the Institute for Integrative Psychoanalysis and Psychotherapy and the Chicago Center for Integrative Psychotherapy. Author and editor of numerous books in psychology and spirituality, he lectured internationally on his formulation of a neo-Yogian psychoanalysis and integrative psychotherapy. His publications include The Archetype of Initiation, Sacred Space, Ritual Process, and Personal Transformation, The Magician and the Analyst, The Archetype of the Magus in Occult Spirituality and Jungian Psychology, and Facing the Dragon, Confronting Personal and Spiritual Grandiosity. We will have links in the show notes for the complete series, as well as for all of Dr. Moore's lectures. I want to uh, emphasize that this course is designed really as a, a kind of an introductory uh, survey 
just a sort of a, a touching of uh, the surface of uh, this whole incredibly uh, deep and uh, rich area of studies. Uh, and yet, uh, I hope that we will be able to, to invite you into a long period of investigation uh, in depth about these topics and these issues. Uh, by the end of tonight, I hope I'll be able to express to you uh, some of the reasons why I think this particular kind of study is so important for us. Uh, I think perhaps more than ever today uh, in the contemporary situation in which we find ourselves. Uh, let me just say one more word uh, uh, about myself. Uh, and my interest in this. I have been interested in the comparative study of psychology and the human sciences in relationship to world mythology and world mythical traditions for uh, what is now several decades. And, uh, and so this is a, a topic of, of, of uh, uh, great dearness to me. And, uh, and it's one that I've spent a great deal of time working with, and uh, I find that I am more and more interested in it uh, as, uh, as I proceed. So I hope you'll find the, uh, the kind of questions we'll be raising as interesting and exciting as I do. Now let me just refer you to uh, our method of procedure. I hope you've all got your, your catalog, uh, because what I want to do is, is uh, pretty straightforward. Tonight, I want to sort of set the scene, and I want us to get a sense uh, uh, through this work together of the variety, the incredible variety of, of attitudes toward and theories of mythology today. And I want to just say a little bit uh, tonight about the, the, the incredible uh, uh, complexity of studies in this area. And then I want to, to give us tonight a kind of a, a, as clear as possible, differentiation between a Jungian perspective on the study of myth and all of the others, because it's radically different from, from all of the other approaches to mythology. And uh, as I like to say to people, if Jung is right about some of the most fundamental assumptions that he has, uh, then looking at myth has to, we, we have to look at myth for very different purposes uh, and uh, with different kind of expectancies about what we're going to find. So uh, we're going to try to set that kind of context tonight, and I'll be laying out for you what I think uh, uh, the difference, the radical differences are between Jungian and non-Jungian approaches to myth, and then we will uh, before the break, I'll try to go fast so that before the break we can get most of this sort of introductory stuff in, and then we can discuss after you come back from the break. Uh, uh, then I want us to uh, just briefly talk tonight about some of these different topics we'll be going through uh, in the successive weeks and how they sort of fit into the, to the significance of the study of myth. Now, there's, there are mythologies of everything. Uh, I have selected uh, for our common work uh, I, what I believe to be a coherent set of, of topics in myth that I think you'll be able to see how they fit together and how they articulate together in a, uh, an approach, a Jungian approach to mythology. And so uh, uh, we will be dealing with each one of these in some depth. Now, 
I, I'm, I'm happy that you all showed up tonight because I was kind of afraid after the, everybody saw that reading list that they published uh, that, it might, uh, that it might kind of uh, decimate my class. But actually, what I'm really, you know, what I really I wanted to do is to just share with you what I think are some really fine uh, books for you to look into as you deepen your work on this. I'm not expecting to give you pop quizzes on these uh, each week. But these are books which touch on uh, some of these themes and topics. If you have an opportunity to look at them during our course, that would be great. But if you, if you don't, they, this is something that you will be hopefully uh, inspired to, to look into further. And as you take other courses, uh, deepen into this. So uh, this is my uh, thought about how we would proceed. Tonight we'll have this introduction. And then we will go from creation to the apocalypse uh, in six weeks. And I think that if we uh, really work together on that, you'll be able to see how uh, this is related to uh, uh, the human struggle for selfhood and uh, a just and peaceful community. And, uh, and I think uh, the way in which mythology relates to creativity and healing uh, and the great themes of evil and uh, chaos and disorder and so forth, I think that will become more and more evident. Now, uh, uh, are there any questions about this? Uh, if we had a lot more time, I would invite each of you to share uh, what your particular passion in mythology is for and what it's about. Uh, perhaps during our discussion, when you comment, you can tell us your name and uh, something about uh, uh, your, your interest in myth and then make your comment. Any comment or question about how we want to proceed? Okay, then let's jump in and we'll go, uh, we'll go as uh, quickly as possible so that we can take a, a good long break uh, at, uh, at 8 o'clock and uh, get you some coffee and then we'll come back and discuss some. First, I'd like to just point out to us and remind us that, that for aeons, uh, back into prehistory, human beings lived in myth. They did not have theories of myth. They did not interpret myth. Uh, uh, tribal peoples around the world uh, lived in myth. And, uh, of course, many of you may be thinking, well, so do we. And I, I agree, uh, more than people know. Uh, but uh, there were not what we would call today scientific theories or, or sort of uh, systematic theories of mythology. Uh, when we really first began to be aware of what is known today by us in comparative mythology circles as myth, was really uh, in, the, in the periods of colonialism, in which, I mean, particularly early colonialism, when the missionaries, the Christian missionaries from Europe were going out around the world and uh, with the uh, intentions of uh, uh, not only claiming those lands, uh, etc., for their rulers, uh, but with uh, the intention of, uh, of uh, spreading the hegemony of uh, Christian dogma. 
one of the things we want to think about is the relationship between myth and dogma, as Jung saw it. But they were in, had the intention of spreading Christian dogma. And what was shocking to many of these early missionaries as they went around the world is they began to hear stories from the people, from the indigenous peoples that they were, uh, that they were observing, which had themes which were very similar to Christian stories. Uh, this was not something they had any preparation for. They did not expect to hear stories of redeemers who were born in miraculous births, uh, who came with a teaching of uh, love or, uh, or of uh, salvation uh, and so forth and so on. They did not expect to hear stories with motifs which sounded for all the world like Christian dogma, but were presented from a different uh, point of view, a different type of narrative. Their initial response to this was that the devil had been there uh, before them and had been seeding uh, these, these uh, indigenous peoples with, uh, with uh, demonic uh, influences so as to confuse them. Uh, when they were exposed to the uh, true gospel. See. But uh, for our purposes, it's just Im important for us to realize that, that there was no awareness to speak of in early Christian circles of the other tribal myths. And uh, the first encounter was a shock to find that other peoples had stories. Not only did they have stories, these stories had structures and themes which were hauntingly parallel to many of the themes and stories of the biblical uh, tradition. So this was a this was the beginning of the uh, uh, encounter of uh, uh, European uh, culture uh, with its sort of detached attitudes toward these uh, other peoples of the world. Uh, with mythology. Uh, the first systematic studies uh, in, uh, in uh, the history of the West of uh, mythology came out of the, the growing interest of uh, these colonial cultures uh, in, the, in these indigenous cultures. The rise of anthropology, many of you already know, really came out of the development of the initial interest of the great trading companies. Uh, a lot of the first sort of proto-anthropologists were, were uh, members of the uh, uh, staff of trading companies that went out across the world uh, bargaining for various goods to bring back to European uh, cultures. Uh, early anthropology actually developed out of that uh, a tradition of studies, and um, continued the suspicions, the suspicion and derogation of, of the attitudes toward the myths of, uh, of tribal and indigenous peoples, and considered them primitive superstitions. Uh, brought a little more scholarly attitude toward it, you know. Uh, well, we know these people are inferior to Christians and Christian culture, and. Uh, 
And yet, by golly, uh, studying them is very interesting. And so they began to send uh, Oxford-trained and uh, University of Berlin-trained uh, uh, people uh, to study around the world. Uh, <clears throat> and out of that grew the kind of uh, uh, traditions of uh, cultural anthropology, gradually more and more uh, systematic, more and more reflective that we've come to know of as the anthropology of religion, the history of the anthropology of religion today. If you have no background in that, let me recommend that you get this reader uh, by Lessa and V-O-G-T, I think that's pronounced Vote, just called a, a Reader in Comparative Religion. And it's got a lot of the little excerpts from the history of uh, comparative anthropology of religion and the study of myth and ritual is uh, laid out there, the history of it, the different theories uh, developed by different uh, early anthropologists. <clears throat> now, remember, if you're coming from a dominant Christian culture and you assume these people had to be wrong, and you assume that you were in the highest possible civilization, this is, a lot of it was prior to World War I, you know, prior to the sinking of the Titanic. The Titanic had not yet, the unsinkable ship had not yet been sunk. Uh, and so uh, uh, it still had this uh, attitude of study from a superior place. But they began to systematize it and try to explain why all these uh, stories uh, uh, existed, similar stories across cultures. And they came up with a number of explanations, usually uh, some form of, of uh, social uh, reductionism. Uh, usually using the, uh, the uh, mythology to, to, in some way, which would be related to patterns of dominance in the culture, uh, kinship patterns, that the, uh, the myths and the ritual practices in the culture establish patterns of domination, systems of legitimacy of power, uh, rationalizations for kinship, uh, rationalizations for the, uh, the social organizations in that particular tribe or in that particular culture. Uh, <clears throat> uh, there, were, there were a number of these, uh, uh, all of them pretty much uh, mechanistic models as reflected the 19th century kind of, uh, of uh, uh, attitudes towards science that uh, later on Freud and his approach uh, uh, to religion and mythology would reflect. So they were redu reductionistic models. They were models which uh, were what we would might call dynamic models, uh, 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 reflecting social dynamics, uh, and uh, uh, were not deemed to be reflective of any kind of uh, sacred reality, any kind of essential human psychic reality. Um, uh, but um, uh, actually sort of primitive uh, uh, science, primitive uh, methods of social control. This is pretty much continued uh, 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 a great deal in, uh, in the 20th century. Uh, uh, if you study the anthropology of religion today, you still get a lot of uh, sort of sociological reductionism uh, emphasizing uh, uh, the ways in which mythology 
reflects and supports uh, structures of dominance. And that uh, they, did, they used this sort of approach before Marxist theories and when Marxist theories in the universities became fashionable, uh, that was adopted and uh, turned into a high art. Uh, today it has uh, uh, evolved um, on the cutting edge in the universities to what one might call postmodernist theories of myth, uh, deconstructionist theories of myth, all which uh, get further and further into the reflection of how uh, the fantasy materials of a particular culture or social location are used to uh, to justify the particular oppressions of that particular group. Uh, and so these uh, these uh, models continue on. Uh, to this day. I mean, the attitudes and the models uh, continue on to this day. It's very, it's very interesting to me that even among the people that are considered uh, by the scholars and the better universities today uh, as the experts on the study of myth, uh, myth is, is treated very reductively. Uh, it is not really seen as having uh, all that much to say to uh, contemporary human beings. Uh, and the attitude increasingly is, actually, you have no business really messing with other people's myths. Uh, you're basically, if you're studying other people's myths and stories, you're, uh, you have to really watch it if, if you're not going to become a sort of a rapist, colonial rapist of uh, their tradition. And uh, this has made uh, people even more reluctant to uh, try to look at uh, mythologies of tribal or indigenous peoples as resources for contemporary uh, reflection. Uh, you might want to look at some of the uh, work that's come out of uh, uh, the University of Chicago Divinity School of late. Uh, uh, attitudes toward other people's myths uh, uh, is something that's uh, been a theme of much discussion there. Uh, <clears throat> now, this kind of uh, attitude toward the study of myth began to be uh, reflected in psychology in a serious way only with the rise of the classical Freudians. Uh, Freud himself was a, was a person who was fascinated by the study of mythology, uh, more so than a lot of people realize, and was deeply interested in comparative mythology. And you really have to get back into his work to see just how much uh, he was interested in myth. And he really did organize most of his early thought around uh, Greek themes in mythology. And uh, it's very interesting, if you have never done so, to go back into the early community of Freudians and look at the attention that those early Freudians paid to the study of myth. I have uh, uh, put here on your uh, uh, reading list uh, the work of Otto Rank, who was uh, an early uh, Freudian scholar. Uh, but Otto Rank is not the only one by any means. There were, there were many of the early Freudians who, who worked uh, on the uh, study of myth. Again, looking at mythology as reflecting dynamics, 
Uh, <clears throat> certainly of social conflict uh, around sex and aggression, Oedipal conflicts, uh, but again, not something you look at for any kind of guidance for uh, contemporary people. Uh, you, you look at, if you're looking at a myth from a Freudian point of view, you are looking for clues about the way in which human beings typically use myth to uh, uh, mask uh, unacceptable uh, uh, instinctual drives find ways to, through ritualization, not a positive thing in Freudian uh, uh, circles, to, through ritualization to avoid uh, too much consciousness with regard to these drives. <clears throat> so again, uh, in Freudian circles, you had the same sort of 19th century uh, cosmology, uh, scientific cosmology with regard to myth, reductionistic, emphasis on the role of myth in uh, in supporting dynamics, though this uh, with the emphasis not on psychosocial dynamics, but on intrapsychic uh, dynamics. So there's been an enormous amount of study, and I want to refer you, for those of you that are really into studying this stuff, to the work of a friend of mine, Robert Siegel, S-E-G-A-L, who is a, uh, a religious scholar uh, who has written extensively on uh, theories of myth uh, in the academic literature, uh, uh, comparing and contrasting a number of these uh, traditions. I'll get the reference uh, on his book. Uh, I've got a copy of it. I just don't remember the exact title uh, for you for next week. <clears throat> now, you're coming for an, uh, an orientation from a Jungian point of view about the study of mythology. Uh, uh, it's important for you to realize the dominant traditions with regard to attitudes toward myth. These dominant traditions toward the, in the attitude toward myth have also been reflected uh, among uh, Christian theologians. You know, so it's not just been the anthropologist and the uh, Freudian psychologist who depreciated myth in our culture. There have been a lot of people in philosophy and in theology as well who have depreciated myth and re reduced it to something primitive, quote unquote, and sub uh, 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 sub modern, you might say. Uh, so this I present to you as a context and a background and also as a contemporary context because the dominant attitude toward myth in universities across the country today, including the one here, uh, uh, is in that tradition, not in the tradition that I'm going to lay out for you uh, uh, in a moment. Uh, and so you need to realize that if you start looking at mythology from a Jungian point of view, you are going against the grain. You are in many ways uh, marginal to the dominant academic culture. And, uh, and you need to understand that if uh, uh, people find that you are studying Jung, and certainly that you're using Jung to interpret myth, uh, you will not find uh, among most people that consider themselves experts on this topic, you will not find them pleased that you're doing that. They will try to restrain their revulsion towards you because you're doing that, and uh, they will go take Pepto-Bismol after, you know, they finish talking with you or something like that. 
see if they can refrain from blasting you about this. Now, uh, why is that? Well, there are lots of reasons for that, and I will just name a few uh, that uh, you don't need to know this week or next week or during this course, but sometime as you struggle with these issues, you will want to become more and more aware of what is the, what the culture of modernity is. And I recommend to you the work of an outstanding sociologist, one that I admire uh, a great deal, Peter Berger. And I'd recommend that you read his books, uh, The Sacred Canopy and um, The Homeless Mind, uh, as two books which treat the culture of modernization as it affects our culture in particular. That is, you've got to get a sense for modern culture, the modern mind, and what it can and cannot do, what it has difficulty with. Uh, uh, and uh, those books will help you a great deal uh, looking at that. Another book that you should put on your reading list for that purpose is the fine book uh, by Peter Homans uh, called uh, Jung in Context, Modernity in the Making of a Psychology. Uh, Holmes is not a Jungian. Uh, he has a fascination with Jung. I always told him he should have uh, uh, probably gotten into Jungian analysis instead of writing that book, but, uh, but it's a fine book. Uh, and uh, it treats this particular issue of modernization. Uh, and uh, uh, in short, Modern culture has a tremendous difficulty with the idea that there may be underlying structures of meaning which can be discovered. Modern culture has a, a distinct uh, sort of implicit deconstructionist bias. Uh, uh, I like to say that what is called deconstructionism or postmodernism uh, today in the universities is really hypermodernism. It's not postmodernism at all. It is a tendency to analyze and analyze and dissect and dissect structures of meaning until they disappear in your hand. There is no capacity to get down into any underlying structures of meaning that the ego has not constructed. And this is where Jung parts company with all the modernists all of them, all these, all the contemp contemporary ones. Uh, and uh, it is at this point that we need to introduce the kind of assumptions that we need to be aware of if we're going to get a sense for what a, a distinctively Jungian uh, understanding of myth would be. Uh, and it has to do with understandings about the structure of the human mind, about the structure of the unconscious itself. <clears throat> if you are in a Freudian tradition, for example, the unconscious is a result of <coughs> repression, essentially, of, in, of unacceptable instinctual contents that you do not want to face because of fear and guilt. And the personal unconscious, or the unconscious, therefore, is really 
uh, essentially a, a matter of personal repression. The unconscious is not something which is continuous between the two of us and the rest of the class. In other words, the personal unconscious, uh, if you're a Freudian, everybody in this class would have Oedipal issues. We would know what myth we would need to study in order to get at the mythology of our psyches. We'd have to study Oedipus Rex. And we would know that you all had uh, triangulation issues with the parent of the other sex. But we would not be looking to your unconscious for guidance for either you or for the world. We would be looking at your unconscious to figure out the exact kind of expression that your Oedipal conflict is having in your life. And so uh, it's very important for you to see this, the theory of the unconscious. In a Freudian theory of the unconscious, it is not collective, it's not species-wide, and it is not a source of guidance toward wholeness. Jung's classical theory of the unconscious, and I want to distinguish here between a Jungian point of view and a so-called post-Jungian point of view, uh, because uh, uh, from, from Jung's point of view, the unconscious ha is layered. He agreed with Freud and Adler that there was a personal level to the unconscious. Each one of us is different in terms of the traumas we've had. You know, for Adler, if you were a youngest child, you had different personal traumas than you would have if you were a middle child. And if you were an older child, you'd have different personal traumas that would be reflected in your behavior than, uh, than uh, a twin, so to speak. And with Freud, uh, depending on how well your uh, uh, family handled your um, incestuous wishes, uh, the way in which you would have been able to come to terms with that would differ with each of us. But with Jung, you get a totally different vision of the unconscious. You get a layered unconscious, which includes that that we talked about in Freud and Adler, but which includes a layer which is universal to the human species. We, of course, talked about this as the collective unconscious. Let me just read you a short paragraph from this study guide that I want to recommend to you for the serious students of Jung's work. Abstracts of the Collected Works of Carl Jung, which is available. Guide to the Collected Works. If you do around in this stuff a lot, you ought to get you a copy of this. I think it's available in paperback. This is a comment from the uh, just summary section on uh, volume 9-1. Archetypes of the Collective Unconscious. <coughs> Let me just read this in the context of our class tonight. In this volume, that's volume 9-1, the, con the concept of archetypes as the mode of expression of the collective unconscious is discussed. In addition to the purely personal unconscious hypothesized by Freud, a deeper unconscious level is felt to exist. This deeper level manifests itself 
in universal archaic images expressed in dreams, religious beliefs, myths, and fairy tales. The archetypes as unfiltered psychic experience appear sometimes in their most primitive and native forms in dreams, sometimes in a considerably more complex form due to the operation of conscious elaboration in myths. So there is your Tai and Jung's thought between his theory of the unconscious, the reality of the dream, and a collective representation as seen in myth. Uh, archetypal images expressed in religious dogma are elaborated into formalized structures which, by expressing the unconscious in a circuitous manner, prevent direct confrontation with it. So uh, we'll want to think about dogma and myth uh, as we go later. Okay, so <clears throat> Jung postulated a collective unconscious. Uh, if you're going to take a Jungian approach to myth, one of the tasks is to ask yourself, what is the collective unconscious, or as some call it, the objective psyche? What is its role? How is it expressed in myth? And if we are going to look at mythology from a Jungian point of view, what is it that we're trying to do that would be different from, say, what a Freudian would, would be doing? And so let me, just, uh, let me just ask you that question now, based on what I have said, and have you tell me, based on what you've heard, what a Jungian might be doing by studying myths of different peoples, uh, as opposed to what the Freudian might be doing. Uh, let's just, uh, you tell me what you think, and then I'll tell you some of the thoughts I have on that. Just any of you, just uh, uh, speak up. What might a Jungian be trying to do if myths reflect a collective unconscious? Yes? To establish a common ground between all humans, regardless of race or ethnic group Certainly, if you, if, you, if you had the concept of a collective unconscious uh, as a concept, you would want to be exploring what in fact was collective about that unconscious. And so you would be building, you could be indeed building evidence for what is, what is common to, to all peoples by studying world mythology. Uh, so you would have a very different attitude uh, if, if your intention is to look for what's common rather than to look for what's different. That's really a big difference between uh, students. So, so that's one, one way to think about it. What else might you be doing? If you're a, now, you're a, you're a psychological scientist thinking with Jung. Uh, what else might you be doing? Yeah, go ahead. Trying to help you identify sort of some of the building blocks, I guess, some basic building blocks of yeah, it's like he's, he's saying that uh, you, you be, might be trying to identify some of the basic building blocks of human experience. That is to say, this would not be some empty activity. Uh, unlike a Freudian who knows what he's going to find before he studies it, 
he knows what myth he's going to find, and he knows what it means. So he really wouldn't have to study it. And I haven't said much about Adlerians, but Adlerians, uh, once they've done your lifestyle assessment and, 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 and interpreted your early memories, they know, they think, what your, what your lifestyle is. And therefore, they don't need to look at myths to figure out uh, your lifestyle. So this is a different kind of attitude. It's, it's, if you're looking to find something that you might not have known. And so this is something that people today miss a lot about Jung's work. They like to talk about Jung as being somehow mystical, out, you know, sort of out of the world and you know, not really down to earth. But in a way, there's a sense in which Jung has an empirical scientific attitude in the study of mythology. He's trying to find out stuff about human beings by studying it. So he is looking for things he did not know when he is studying these things comparatively. Okay, anyone else with an idea? What you might say, yes. To establish some type of relationship to the transcendent. Okay. He says uh, that one might be doing it to, to establish a relation to the transcendent or to the sacred. Now, <clears throat> that is a very complicated issue. Uh, uh, I think the way Jung would talk about that uh, it would be in the context of what he, following Rudolf Otto, called the, the study of the numinous the sacred manifesting as the numinous. Uh, uh, we'll get into that just in a minute, talking about Eliade, but I think you're right. That is to say, Jung believed, contrary to all other psychologists, that healing, real healing, comes with an encounter with the numinous, or what you might say with the sacred, or with the transcendent. And so uh, uh, part of your, if you were a psychologist and you were studying what really today is called ethnopsychiatry, see, I mean, if you're studying these cultures, you would be studying their healing practices. Now, you would not be doing that simply as a museum piece. You would be studying their healing practices so you might actually learn something about how they facilitated experiences which were healing for people that our psychiatrists today do not know how to do. If we had time, I could take the class and we could go to some Illinois State mental hospitals. And we could see how our best and brightest have absolutely no idea how to actually heal people who are dominated by experiences of the numinous. They know how to medicate them, and they seek to contain them, but it does not occur to most of the best and brightest from our best medical schools that studying the practices, healing practices of indigenous peoples and their rituals might actually contain clues to how actually to heal schizophrenia and psychotic uh, uh, kinds of states rather than merely uh, warehousing them. But that would be another example related to what you're saying. Anyone else want to comment about what a Jungian scientist might be doing with this type of thing? Okay, well, that's a lot in itself. And uh, <clears throat> that, I think, provides an excellent context for us. Uh, uh, and one of the things that I'll recommend for you to do 
uh, as we work on this material is to read uh, uh, the work of uh, Mircea Eliade. Uh, particularly look at his book, The Sacred and the Profane. And I recommended this Myth and Reality book. But basically, uh, any of Iliadi's work is treating this topic that we're working with. It is treating the human uh, uh, world as a mythic world. And a world which is lived in and through mythical themes and motifs and ritual practices associated with them. Uh, so, uh, so that point that you raised there is, is central here. Now, to tie it to our interest, I think, uh, I would like to just elaborate some more assertions that I want to make out of my own uh, point of view about this uh, before we... Uh, before we uh, take a break. I come out of a tradition uh, in Jungian thought that uh, emphasizes the importance of the collective unconscious, not de-emphasizes it. Uh, I believe there's nothing more critical in our time than finding a way back to a sense of the unity of the human species. That is, of all the critical issues right now on the planet Earth, the, what Eric Erickson called the human tendency to pseudo-speciate, to turn itself into a splitting of different beings and not recognizing other humans as really us. Uh, uh, so much of the tragedy on our earth right now, from Somalia uh, to Eastern Europe uh, to Northern Ireland, uh, to Israel uh, in the Middle East, uh, to uh, uh, the streets of Chicago, uh, the resurgence worldwide of racism. Uh, these things are all related to what Erickson was talking about as pseudo-speciation, the inability that we have to recognize ourselves as one species to be able to utilize the resources in us as a species uh, to cooperate with each other in building a habitat that is sustainable and humane, one which uh, uh, is uh, at least humane. Uh, in the time in which we live, we live we live in probably what is probably the most critical time in the history of our species. Uh, we run the risk in a very short time of creating an ecological situation in which it will be impossible for our children and their children to have a rich human existence, uh, rich in the sense of aesthetics and uh, and uh, experience of nature that is, that is not toxic. I don't know whether any of you saw the uh, special the other night about the eco-spy uh, who has been uh, using his camcorder to uh, record the uh, devastation of the environment wholesale by so many big companies around the world. And he's been using it to get leverage uh, for the stopping of the slaughter of the dolphins and, uh, and other species. 
and he was speaking very passionately. I really was uh, really touched. He was speaking very passionately about a time when, when your children are going to say, Dad, tell me what a grizzly was like. Uh, tell me what a grizzly was like. Uh, and he went on and on about that, and he was pointing out that in, our, that in a very short time, uh, the children of uh, the human race are going to live in an incredibly toxic emotional and spiritual environment because of the devastation that is uh, coming so rapidly upon us. Now, what's this got to do with the pseudo-speciation idea? If human beings cannot find a way to cooperate for a planetary future, a humane habitat for their species that includes a rich ecological environment, uh, then this narrow window that we have to turn things right side up is going to be gone. So what's this got to do with a study of myth and psyche? I think it has tremendous things to do with myth and psyche. Uh, and let me just say a number of those things that I think it has where they touch. No tribal people ever set out to be tribal. They all were seeking to establish a center from which to build a cosmos, a world, which was in tune with sacred patterns. And uh, if Iliadi has one theme that he emphasizes about the, the nature of mythology, which distinguishes it from folklore, he says that it is in human mythology that human beings point back to the original center at which the world was established. Creation was formed. Right relationships between men and women were imagined and struggled with fitfully until they could begin to get it right. And uh, uh, the reality of evil entered, and then humans discovered how to encounter it and how to recognize it and how to struggle with it successfully. Illness was encountered, and then means of healing were discovered and ways to get back to the center, the fountain of blessing and healing and regeneration so that that healing could be brought back into the human community to restore the patterns which had been there at the beginning, as Iliadi says, in illo tempore, in the beginning. Uh, <clears throat> and so tribal peoples were not trying to create a tribal reality. They weren't trying to be Hopi or Zuni or Zulu or Apache. They were trying, they were getting to a center to become humans as they could be, the best that they could be to be as true to the vision of what the human could be as was possible. Now, here's my assertion. This is in our hardwiring as a species. You can take the particular form of ape that we are, and you can sit us down anywhere, and this particular ape will make myths and it will use whatever raw materials are there. If all they have is red clay, the myths will be all full of red clay. 
And the story will be that, well, they emerged out of this red clay hut, you know, but they would emerge, see. If all they had was bamboo, then the myths would talk about bamboo and the first bamboo shoot that came up and the first people came down that bamboo shoot, you know. But wherever you put that, wherever you put that human ape, they would create myths. And in it, they would create themes and stories addressing these major human issues about finding the center, creating cosmos or world, understanding the forces of creativity and how ambivalent they are, how evil comes in right along with creation, see, right at the creative moment. Uh, how men and women have to struggle in order to find a way to relate to each other. Uh, what regeneration and healing are about and how they're related to creation. Uh, what is initiation or maturation or full empowerment? Uh, and what is transformation? Uh, what is the end or goal of all of this? Uh, so all those themes are addressed by this particular ape wherever you put it. And it uses the resources that are at its disposal to deal with these themes. <clears throat> Now, I said that it's hardwired, and I want to point out that we are the species that seeks to create a self and images that in terms of a world, often a holy city. We'll get into that in the discussion after the break if you'd like. Uh, and that is constantly seeking to understand the relationship between selfhood, world, and community. And you look at any of these mythic traditions, you will see them struggling with those issues. So uh, this is the kind of thing that I want us to be thinking about. As you look at these uh, different motifs and themes, uh, that we'll be looking at together. Be thinking about uh, our situation today. And along with Joseph Campbell, another great uh, uh, mythologist that I haven't had a chance to talk about yet, think about the radical time we're in in terms of myth-making. If you look at that little book, The Inner Reaches of Outer Space, Campbell is saying that we're in a time where for the first time, since we can see Earth from space, we are really able to conceive of Earth men and Earth women, uh, Earth community. And I don't know if you've seen uh, Al Gore's uh, book, uh, Earth in the Balance, but uh, uh, as he has put it, uh, for the first time now, there's really a possibility to think about an Earth ethic, a species ethic.
And so my comment before we take our break now is that we are at one of the most exciting possible times in the history of this myth-making ape. Just think about the history of this particular ape because its incredible evolved forebrain has now enabled it to get a perspective from space back on its origins which for the first time may be able to imagine itself for the, as a species. In other words, there may be a sense in which there has never been an imagining of the human before. And I would invite you to think about the possibility that our studies of myth and our, the way we steward our studies of comparative mythology today may be uh, our way of bringing into the collective consciousness some of the resources that we may need to revision uh, the ape that we are in a way that's whole enough and healthy enough for us to have a chance for the future. Let me just open it up now uh, and uh, let's uh, discuss and raise questions and dialogue around any of these issues uh, uh, that you wish, and we'll go on until uh, 9 o'clock sharp, uh, and then we'll let you go. So uh, feel free to disrobe. Uh, <laughs> sauna, we'll have a sauna fee. Yeah, yeah right. Paradisal notion there, utopian. Okay, let's just jump in. Comments, questions, reflections, myths, dreams, yeah. Can you say more about Campbell, especially in terms of sort of which camp? Yes. Uh, one thing I did not point out is there's a tradition behind this Jungian tradition, and let me just mention what I think it is. And uh, uh, as we go, as we get our curriculum at the Institute developing, we probably will teach some courses on this particular tradition and get it more fleshed out. But the, the, the earliest representation of the tradition that Jung is in is an anthropologist at the University of Berlin uh, called Adolf Bastian, B-A-S-T-I-E-N. And he was one of the very first to affirm the psychic unity of the human species. And he said that there are elementary ideas that are common to all peoples. Uh, <coughs> elementary ideas. And uh, you would never know he ever existed by studying in American anthropology departments. And I think it's really wonderful that there's been a fine little book that's come out on him recently, but was it published by an American university press? No. Where was it published? In an Australian university where they don't give a damn about what uh, American ideology with regard to this is. So the Australians come and they publish the shadow things in the American uh, intellectual establishment. Yeah. Yeah, go ahead. It seems to be as open to the, to the sacred, though. Well, it depends. Yeah, uh, he says that, that uh, Campbell didn't seem to be as open to the sacred. Well, let's, let's draw a little finer... Uh, focus on that. Uh, Campbell was not a person whose interpretation was balanced on these matters. He did not like the peoples of the book. 
Now, people have emphasized and said that he's anti-Semitic. Well, uh, he did not like, uh, certainly did not like Judaism. But then we have to understand he didn't like Catholicism either. And he didn't like, he especially didn't like Islam. Uh, he didn't like any of the religions of the book. Uh, he didn't like traditions that had a lot of emphasis on authoritative priesthoods or revelations. So clearly, he did not like the traditions about the sacred, which are characteristics of, of the peoples of the book. Uh, however, if your definition of the sacred is, is large enough uh, to include uh, Hindu and Buddhist traditions, uh, he loved Hindu and Buddhist traditions with regard to spirituality, and uh, though, they, uh, though he tended to appreciate those that were more, quote, atheistic uh, traditions with regard to the sacred. Now, uh, if that sounds confusing, then what you need to do is probably get a good, uh, a good survey textbook on the history of religions uh, which most of these good surveys explain about uh, the sacred and non-theistic forms, uh, which is pretty much accepted by everyone uh, today, uh, scholars in the field. Uh, so that's a way to think about it. Campbell was not balanced. He, he was biased toward Hinduism and Buddhism and Asian traditions. He, he really couldn't stand to look at this. He would not, for example give you the time of day to study the uh, the mythic dimensions of uh, uh, the book of Samuel. Now, if you take a more uh, open sort of Iliadi point of view to the manifestations of the sacred and you start coming, as my colleague Andre Lacote, for example, does to the Hebrew scriptures with a kind of an Iliadi Paul Ricoeur mindset, and you start looking at the creation stories and the Ark of the Covenant and and uh, the formation of the Davidic kingdom and, and all these things, then you begin to see all of these mythic motifs expressed in the Hebrew scriptures that, of course, if you had a Bible professor, he never told you were there most of the time. So, uh, so it's really the kind of open uh, interpretive framework you bring to the tradition that, that that helps you see its mythic motifs. One of the things I want us to do, and you know, when I'm going to, I'm going to, when we're talking about the uh, the divine child, you know, the uh, the uh, mythology of the divine child, I want to talk a little bit about Christian, because Christianity is a wonderful uh, uh, in its mythology, the mythology of the divine child, the way it relates to everything is so clear there. Uh, so anyway, uh, you gotta. To see that Campbell is not very balanced. Iliad is much more open to uh, the sacred and, you know, everything from a rock to, uh, to uh, Western traditions, Eastern traditions, uh, Native traditions, whatever. Other comments, questions? Yes. Um, I work in the field of substance abuse, and I was very interested in um, what Eliade said about the structure of men. Yeah. And uh, there was a lot of analogy between um, how myths are structured and how they are um, ritualized and how they are taught and with AA yes. and uh, the meetings, the AA meetings, the AA literature 
if you look at it, you can see how uh, it's set up as um, a myth. And in fact, uh, one of the people that started AA did work with you, and you said that in order to yeah. recover, you have to have a psychic change. But I thought that um, it was very, very interesting to to think of um, AA in particular, and also I suppose other institutions in terms of. Uh, how they um, uh, have a life uh, of their own, or they become something more than uh, just an organization. They mediate the mythic imagination, right. even though they may not say, this is mythology. They, they mediate and see, that's what I was trying to say about this ape that we are. Anything we do, to the extent that we create an institution or a community, if you've got these eyes, if you study this material and you have eyes to see, you'll start seeing the way in which we are trying, <laughs> we are trying to form a cosmos. People in AA are trying to get the chaos regulated, and they're coming up with ritual forms to help with that. And they're trying to get a sense of the mediation of the sacred in various ways. So I think you're absolutely right, and it would be a rich way to approach thinking about that. Also, we'll get into this as we go. You know, to the extent that one is not somewhat reflective about one's mythology, then it tends to take on a very dogmatic flavor. It begins to be systematized and become rigidified. And uh, uh, if one doesn't develop what Jung talked about as the ego archetype axis, or the ego self-connection, uh, then one can't really be very aware of how one is using, say, another person. We need to think about how we use other persons mythically. Because, uh, for example, in psychoanalysis today, we talk about idealizing transferences, which we make projections we have on someone else. I'm always saying to, to people I work with, uh, well, notice when, when you're with someone and you feel weak and disempowered. If you're with them and you feel weak and disempowered, you are, you are actually projecting an idealization to someone or something in your environment at that point. Now, in the context of our class tonight, that is a mythic imagining of the person that you're feeling weak before. They've stopped being human. They have become, in some sense, divine. And you are experiencing what Rudolf Otto called Mysterium Tremendum in their presence. Oh, you almighty CEO, thou art the source of all good, and I am merely a little you know, supplicant. I could never bring my report into you, you know, see, without shivering and that sort of thing. And that's very common in people's experience. Other comments or questions or thoughts? Yes. Could you please into, um, how would you, you talked about how to distinguish myth from, from folklore. Mm -hmm. How would you distinguish myth from whatever else is out there? Yeah. Well, I, I, really, I really think Iliadi is, is very... Uh, the question is, how do you distinguish myth from whatever else is out there? 
Oh, there are a number of levels to that. First of all, I'm, I'm very appreciative of, of, of uh, the emphasis that people like Ernst Cassirer and other people have made that the human has a mythic imagination. So there is a sense in which we as individuals, as communities, and as institutions, and as societies, and now as a planet, are we're, we're mythologizing now. And even, for example, when we, when we plan a Mars mission, and we think as scientists about staffing the Mars probe, we decide scientifically that there should be four couples staffing that. Of course, these people don't realize that that's a fundamental mythic motif, that at the beginning of creation, arriving from the other world, there were four couples in the cosmic egg. See, some of the most ancient mythology. So in other words, we're mythologizing continually, particularly when it's on the edge of the unknown. Uh, so there's that kind of general dimension that we have to know the human beings are the, are the animal which mythologizes, and so that's in general imagination, particularly at the edges. Uh, but I also think that more specifically, Iliadi points out, say, folklore deals with much more regional, much more specific sort of conflictual issues, uh, what you and I might call wisdom literature, or, or what the Adlerians call uh, uh, mention kindness. It's sort of uh, it's sort of like wise human knowledge, and so folklore has uh, it focuses on archetypal motifs, but the archetypal motifs you find a lot in folklore are much more limited, practical, everyday concerns that you may find in your life as an adolescent or in your life as a young man or your life as a young woman as you're struggling to deal with your mother-in-law or whatever. It is a much more regional, much more special kind of, uh, of motif, uh, whereas I think Iliad is right in emphasizing that myth is always related to creation. You cannot understand, uh, according to Iliad, you cannot understand uh, human mythology without understanding that it's related to the creative beginnings, the creative orderings of the beginnings. And I agree with that because I think we have to see this in the context of the psychology of the self. And I think we have to be aware that we're all in a struggle against chaos. And we're all in a struggle to find a meaningfully ordered world. And to be able to experience that, first of all, in our center. And the fact is that if you look carefully around you and in you, you will notice at what an enormous struggle it is to find a center where you can stand to build your world. I mean, this is the struggle that we have. Indivi what is individuation? Individuation is the struggle to find a center from which one can move toward wholeness. And, uh, and so I think that, uh, that if we're going to talk about uh, the deeper layers of myth, uh, uh, we're looking at how to create world and selfhood, 
how to sustain it, how to mend it when it is broken, you know, how to keep it from self-destructing. And so that is the way I think, uh, I, I think that's Iliadi's genius. I think, incredibly, it is consistent with Jung's psychology, but even more interesting to me, it is uh, Iliadi's point of view on this, that we'll elaborate a lot next week, is even more consistent with recent findings in other schools of psychoanalysis about the self, the formation of the self, structure of the self. Yes. Uh, in Joseph Campbell's <coughs> book, which you recommended, there is a passage which has uh, struck me, and that is <coughs> the distinction, the difference between the Freudian yes. view of the myth and yes. the Jungian view. Yes. Now, in Freud, he says that it is the myths are grounded in the best uh, complexes and experiences. Yes. That kind, uh, one has with Jung, uh, uh, is grounded in the biological, yes. or in the biological organs and the part of the presentation. Now, yes. my question is that if, if, if at all it is possible in this uh, short period to elaborate on the, uh, on the, these biological organs, because in my view of things is that uh, interpretation, if one, one, wants to interpret the experience uh, or reality, uh, there's not one way of constructing myth. Absolutely. There are at least three ways that you mentioned in the source, in the first or so, for instance, when you yes. talk about uh, sensation as one way and one method. Yes. Uh, excuse my uh -huh. lack of rigor in using the term, but uh, sensation is one feeling is another uh, yes typological framework about it yes uh, how do you connect these uh, methodological schematic means of uh, interpretation of reality yes. to the archetype to the unconscious yes <clears throat> well uh what i would recommend the question is really uh and he's really pointing to a very important uh, distinction that we mentioned earlier uh, between the Freudian point of view and uh, Jungian point of view. Uh, that is a classical uh, Jungian point of view. That is the emphasis in Jung that there is a biological substrate to mythology. Uh, and he's raising the question about some of the distinctions made, typological distinctions that Jung makes uh, in interpreting uh, uh, mythology and other fantasy materials and imaginative materials. <clears throat> uh, the way I think that if you're interested in the uh, relationship between the biological and the imaginative, I would recommend that you look at Anthony Stevens' work. Uh, start with his little book on Jung, which is a, is a, a nice little introduction in this tradition of thought. You've got to remember, uh, you look at uh, Andrew Samuel's book, Jung and the Post-Jungians. There are schools of Jungian thought now. You can't be sure when anybody's up talking as a Jungian. You can't be sure what they think. So you need to be able to ask yourself, is this person a developmentalist? Is this person an archetypalist? Is this person a more of a classical Jungian? Uh, uh, the point of view I'm presenting comes out of more of a classical tradition. I reject the label post-Jungian. I consider myself a Jungian. I, I consider myself an analytical psychologist uh, uh, who uh, affirms the centrality and importance of not only the concept of the collective unconscious but the archetypal self. 
Anthony Stevens' work is the work that brings together the most uh, systematic scientific evidence relating it to biology, to the kind of thing we're talking about. So start with On Jung and then look at Archetypes and Natural History of the Self, which, uh, which uh, will give a more elaborate treatment uh, of this tradition, sort of the grounds in this tradition. Uh, the typological issue, we can get into that more later. Uh, I personally uh, think that that leads you down a little red lane somewhere uh, away from the most fundamental issues uh, because I think uh, in my own work I I've come to believe that there are far more profound uh, and significant uh, psychological roots of the human tendency to see the world quadrated, uh, that is in a fourfold form, uh, than the psychological typology. Uh, I don't believe that the psychological typology uh, is a decoding of the, uh, the human uh, fourfoldness of the human psyche. Uh, so Jung did a lot of work on the typology. <clears throat> I won't be emphasizing that because I personally did not really think that particular line of investigation proved very fruitful. I think the line represented by his disciple Tony Wolfe was far more uh, a fruitful line than one that got dropped. Uh, but we'll get into that more as we go. Uh, uh, but anyway, Stevens is the best source for that kind of study. Yes? Well, Robert Johnson uh, is uh, a creative uh, classical Jungian writer and is useful uh, as you sort of kind of explore your way around in sort of uh, uh, traditions with regard to masculine and feminine psychology and other topics. Uh, I don't think people really think of him as a specialist in mythology and psychology of mythology in the way that uh, you would uh, consider Campbell or Eliade. Uh, he is a fascinating, intuitive interpreter of those traditions, and you can do well to read all of his books and to use his book, Inner Work, uh, as a sort of a handbook to get into dream interpretation and, uh, and uh, active imagination. We can talk about those as personal myth, uh, mythic work. But <clears throat> uh, that would be something that I would put on my bibliography if I had a long bibliography, but I wouldn't ask you to read that first. Okay. Um, you yes. Well, dreams, uh, you see, one of the things that I think that I want to be pointing out more and more as we go is that if you're not into the tr in the recent, more recent sort of so-called post-Jungian uh, uh, camp, and you still believe that with Jung that there's an archetypal self that is an axial, crystalline axial structure uh, that, that is there uh, as a, a potential structure for through which one's individual uh, location and resources uh, can, uh, around which it can crystallize and form uh, a self. Uh, <clears throat> if you do believe there is this axial, crystalline axial structure to the self as sort of a blueprint for the developing human self 
as uh, Jung did and as I do. Uh, uh, then uh, you 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 apply the same kind of attitude toward dreaming as you uh, looking at individual dreams as you would toward individual motifs uh, from different cultures. That is, in our DNA, I would argue, is coded a rich potential for the uh, uh, individual representations of, of our species, uh, individual representatives of our species. Uh, <clears throat> in that code, I think, are a number of, uh, shall we say, mature expressions of very conflictual contents. That is, there's a code, uh, I think, for maturation along different lines of development. Uh, just to give uh, one, the line, I think that there is coded in our DNA uh, uh, a patterning of uh, a healthy expression of aggression for our species, what that aggression evolved for. Uh, and uh, And... I think that if you look at different cultures, you will see that different cultures pick up and express different motifs about aggression, and they're not the same. If you look at, if we looked at your dreams, and we looked at them long enough, we would find dreams dealing with your struggle with your aggression. And uh, and if we took the dreams of all of our class members, we would notice. In all of our dreams, our individual struggles with our aggression, and uh, there would be very significant differences between our dreams, just as there are significant differences between the mythological uh, stories with regard to uh, this motif in different cultures. Uh, so we can say that I would say that uh, dreams come from this deep level coming off of the, uh, the, uh, the sort of uh, uh, promptings of this uh, implicate order, this implicate order that's in the DNA, trying to correct uh, the conscious attitudes of ego, perhaps. Uh, and since we would be misshapen in very individual ways, our dreams with regard to that motif would be expressing very different kinds of things. But if you're, a, if you're a classical Jungian, we would assume that the unconscious is attempting to help you regulate your integration of that particular line of development. See. And so uh, in terms of uh, different cultures, we notice for example, if you, you study aggression in different, you notice that they do not have the same relationship to aggression, all of them. They all struggle with it. Uh, and, uh, and there's so much to be said about that in this context. It's like, uh, is the culture that uh, teaches that love is the answer superior to the culture that gets aggression conscious and has it dealt with consciously and up front in a, in a ritualized way. Now, there are people that will argue all over the place about that. Now, you see the issues here. You have to think about 
your assumptions about the psyche here. Uh, my assumptions in that are that an individual or a culture that is not conscious about aggression and has not taken conscious responsibility for it is, number one, either going to be acting out aggressively on its neighbors and on its own community unnecessarily, or it's going to be a tremendously vulnerable community when some colonists come by that want their gold or want their women or want their children to sell them into slavery or something. So, uh, so I, that's a long uh, roundabout way to come to your question, but I think we, that's the way we need to work with this. Because my assumption is, uh, and my, my own approach to this following Jung's tradition is that just as we need to look at us, all of our dreams as a series to get a sense about how the objective psyche is trying to correct our relationship to our different lines of development in our psyche, the potential that's there in us, we have to look at world mythology so that we can begin to think about our culture more consciously about what our particular religious tradition and spiritual tradition does with regard to these particular developmental lines. Ask yourself this question. Do you think Christian teaching about aggression in women is the most adaptive kind of point of view to further the evolution of the human female. Now think about that. Uh, we could, we could, or we could say it for the human male. Do you think that Christian teaching is likely to help us deal adequately with aggression in the streets? See, my assumption is that, that uh, Christian teaching uh, is very unconscious about aggression puts it in the shadow. And wherever Christian culture exists, it does not do a good job of taking responsibility for aggression consciously. It demonizes it, puts it in the unconscious, so that it, so that it ensures that people are sadomasochistic on some end of the sadomasochistic continuum. Either we take a masochistic pole to somebody else's sadism or we play sadist to their masochism. See. And so that's, that, that is an argument that, 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 that is simply one expression of the kind of thing I think we have to do on a very wide basis. That would work something like this. We have a spiritual treasure house in world mythology. It, if we hold that treasure house that we have and we don't let it disappear any fast, you know, we, we've got to slow down the rate of its disappearance we have some possibility for experiencing some of the wholeness of the possibilities of the human species. We even have some possibility of, of, of backing off a little bit and, and getting some sense of, of the nuances and shadings of our, of our ape so that we may be more conscious about thinking about the future. Uh, so there's a methodological principle in here that I'm going to be pushing for, uh, from my point of view, that, uh, in these coming weeks. Other comments or questions? Or let's take another one before we go. Anybody else want to raise something? Yeah, Charles. Um, I, 
repeat the, some of that for the tape. Uh, Charles is, is uh, suggesting that in our particular time and, and culture that there are a lot of people in the Afro-American community who are, who are emphasizing the importance of, of people with African ancestry to, to take African mythology extremely seriously, to get grounded in that, to, to stand in that uh, in order to to really find uh, a sense of coherence, uh, coherent selfhood uh, and identity. Now, is that Jungian? Well, now, this is a very fascinating kind of thing. See, here we get to the relationship between tribal perspectives and uh, the possible post-tribalism of our time. Now, Jung never depreciated tribal tradition. In fact, if anything, he emphasized the importance of honoring your own tradition in your search for selfhood. For example, if he was treating uh, uh, an Irish person who was very troubled and did not know anything about Celtic mythology, he would put that person into the study of Celtic mythology as a first kind of, uh, of a study. He would often find that people were very, who were very troubled would have dreams that were bringing up motifs from their own tribal mythical traditions that they did not know anything about and could not recognize as being from their tribal mythical tradition. So the first thing I think we'd have to say is that it is extremely important for one to, to find and honor one's own tribal roots. And so in that respect, I think that would be very consistent with Jung's point of view. In fact, he would even say today, he would say something I wouldn't say. He would say, you know, if you're a Westerner, don't be studying Buddhism, you know, for your own spiritual practice. I mean, study alchemy, you know, study something Western. Uh, uh, but uh, so he had that kind of uh, emphasis on uh, honoring the tribal, your own tribe's myth. Uh, I don't think it's necessary to 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 disagree with that to emphasize the the human unity. In other words, I think we all all study our tribal 
traditions and affirm that as a part of our cultural unconscious. It's there. Uh, and, uh, and it has come into you in ways, even if, you, even if you're an Irish person and you don't even think of yourself as Irish, there are ways in which Irish mythology is in your bones and you need to make it conscious. Um, uh, but I want to affirm something that a lot of people today have a hard time affirming, and that is with Bastian and Campbell and Eliade and Jung, I want to affirm that the, that the next task then is to claim the entire riches of the human mythic tradition as our tradition. Uh, that is really not popular today. It's not politically correct in the universities at all to affirm that. That is considered uh, fascist, <laughs> arrogant, whatever, to claim, uh, to claim some human ownership or stewardship of these uh, traditions. Uh, I think that we must affirm this necessity of honoring all of these traditions and learning as much about them as possible. Uh, so I think we can affirm that search for the African uh, 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 centering for, uh, for people of African tradition. But I recently sat with a whole bunch of ordinary American men who listened to a uh, an elder of the Dagara tribe uh, in Africa talking about his community, what it was like for babies to come be born into his community, the relationship between, in the life cycle between the babies, the mothers, the fathers, the grandfathers, and the ancestors, that whole intergenerational, that whole life cycle web of relatedness. Uh, I heard him describe this in such a way that these ordinary men uh, listening to him were getting in touch with the situation in American culture with regard to isolation of children from birth, the way in which we do not ritualize birth adequately, we do not uh, do ritual bonding uh, in an adequate way with uh, anyone, really, in our culture. And uh, they were able to learn very important things about their own experiences and their own culture by listening to what he had to teach. And so I think that is another expression of this. Uh, we, we get in touch with our tribal traditions and we bring it and tell the other folk, the other apes, what the apes over in our corner learned uh, when we were making our myths. And by sharing this, I think we have a chance to come to a new kind of, uh, new kind of human wisdom. Now that will not be accepted uh, by a lot of people today. But I, I think it's really, there's a watershed coming up soon. Uh, and it's, uh, 
it's going to be very important soon to declare ourselves as to whether we believe there is a human species or not. And be very clear about it. Either there's a human species or there's not. If there's not a human species, then the current rise in racism from all corners and the rise in, uh, in, uh, in ethnocentrism uh, is just going to grow and grow by leaps and bounds, and we'll just see who can buy the most uh, smart bombs and, you know, see which one is superior by, you know, who's got the most AK-47s and smart bombs. Or we can, uh, we can try to learn uh, some new respect for each other, and uh, that's our challenge. I think that, uh, that uh, Jung was making clear a stance that we are one species. And uh, that's the tradition that uh, I'm teaching from anyway. So uh, that's what we'll be working on. Okay, folks, you've got your assignment. Uh, myth of creation next week. Uh, be ready to tell us, tell us a couple. And, uh, and then we will, uh, we will kick it around. podcast is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Share it all you like as long as you maintain the attribution to the speaker, but please do not change it or sell it. If you like this episode, tell your friends about us or leave us a review on iTunes. For more information about classes, training programs, videos, audio, this podcast, or to find a Jungian analyst near you, visit our website, www.youngchicago.org.